There are many, many things that alienate us. I don't know why we do it. In, in Scotland, um, what we love to do in Scotland is we love to diss other cities. So if you're from Perth, you wouldn't be seen dead in Dundee, or it's the only time you'd be seen in Dundee. Um, if you're from Edinburgh, well, people in Glasgow, they're just the scum of the earth. And if you're from Glasgow, there's nowhere else exists in the world apart from Glasgow, because that's just the way that it is. And we, we seem to have that. That's at one level, but at another level, <clears throat> hatred can go very, very deep. You find it within families. You find that there are grudges that are held over many years and sometimes even decades. Well, the context in which we look at this letter and what this has to do with the Christian church is one of deep hostility in the uh, Middle East, in the Mediterranean world, Greece and Rome and North Africa, Palestine, Israel, that whole area, Jordan. There were people who lived together but lived in, in hatred of one another. And the Christian church did something that was really astonishing, something that was really amazing, broke down these barriers of hatred and united people together in the gospel. So, we're going to look at that as we think about it and as we think about what Jesus did for us on the cross and, and why that happened. If you've got a, a Bible, Ephesians 1 verse 11 and verse 12 speaks of something that some of us at least feel, alienation. You were separate from Christ. Verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about, and others of you will say, well, what is he talking about? But you will experience it. You've experienced alienation. You feel as though you don't belong. You feel detached. You feel slightly out of place. You are um, it's when you were in school, you didn't like the idea that you were the, the kid who didn't belong. You're, maybe you come to church, maybe you're in this church, and you think, well, I just kind of feel a little bit alienated. I don't really belong. What causes us to belong? If you go back to your school days, if you wanted to be in, if you wanted to be in with a particular gang, with a particular crowd, it was the music you liked, it was the clothes you wore, it was the things that you had in common and sometimes we pretended an interest in something only because we didn't want to be the outsider. We didn't want to be the kid who was excluded from all others. Well, here we're told about an alienation that is far more serious, an alienation that is from God. We are cut off from God. And because of that, we are cut off or we are disconnected from each other. It is a horrible feeling, isn't it? You have a very close relationship with someone, and then you feel disconnected. You feel this is not working. It's the most horrible thing that happens within a marriage. It's a horrible thing that happens within a church. You know, things have been going along great, and then you feel disconnected. And no matter how rational and no matter how reasonable you try and be about it, that feeling is overwhelming. Here, that sense of alienation 
Paul says to the Ephesians, remember, you were alienated. You didn't belong to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people had been chosen by God. You didn't have circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant, the sign of belonging, like baptism. You were cut off from the world, or rather cut off from God and tied to the world. To be uncircumcised and called uncircumcised was to be outside God's favor. You didn't have that sign. You didn't have that mark. Remember the story of David and Goliath, and David says, will this uncircumcised heathen, will he take on, will he challenge God? And Paul is writing to these Christians who are meeting together in Ephesus, and he's saying, just remember what you were. Remember you were alienated from God. You were without Christ. You were separate from Christ, where Jesus was not a factor nor a reality in our lives. Now, some, maybe some here, will will accept what has been said about alienation. You don't want to be alienated from your parents. You don't want to be alienated from your work colleagues. You don't want to be alienated from your friends. But alienated from Jesus? What does that mean? It means that you're an enemy of God. You may say, well, I'm not an enemy of God. I don't even believe in God, or I'm not sure about God, or whatever. No, it means that you're an, el- an enemy of God. You're separate from God, separate from Jesus Christ. You do not have Jesus Christ. And that is absolutely, by the way, the worst condition to be in. And you're alienated as well from the covenants, foreigners to the covenants of the promise. God has always dealt with His people through covenant and the ancient Jewish people, he dealt with them through the covenant. And the Jewish people, by the way, as I want to show in a moment, are still children of the covenant. But the covenant was a, a relationship in which a sovereign God related with his people. Basic summary of a covenant is I will be your God, you will be my people. And if you didn't belong, you were shut out, you were excluded. To be outside of the covenant is to be without hope, without love, really. There can be no beauty, no meaning, just emptiness, despair. Uh, There's a philosophy called existentialism, which is a philosophy of much of our culture. It's not the only philosophy, but it's a very influential philosophy. And ultimately, it is a philosophy of despair. Now, there's a band I like called the Manic Street Preachers. Absolutely love them. And uh, yet, any of you who know any of their history, and probably most of you won't, so I'll enlighten you, and you'll learn something new. Um, Richie Jones of the Manic Street Preachers, a really complex character, and uh, when they were becoming, just becoming really famous, he disappeared, probably committed suicide, though his body has never been found. It was believed he jumped from the Severn Bridge. But because his body has never been found, there is... uh, all kinds of theories and so on. But he was a, a really sad person in this way. He used to self-harm, used to cut himself. He really, really, really struggled with the whole purpose and meaning of life. Obviously, he went through the whole rock and roll thing with drugs and so on, though he despised it. He hated it. 
He wrote songs about how stupid and empty it was. The sad thing is that there were many, many other people who followed that band who started cutting themselves, started abusing themselves under, for some reason, just following because they felt perhaps that same sense of helplessness and hopelessness. The sad thing about um, Richie Jones is that he grew up in at least a nominally Christian home. He grew up in a Methodist home in Wales. He went along to what was apparently quite a strict church. He became, when he was in the band, he actually became uh, mentally ill. He uh, ended up being sectioned, and uh, the band, who were very strong socialists, uh, even went to the stage of giving up their principles and that and putting him into a private clinic and trying to help him. And after he came out of that clinic, he started quoting Jesus Christ a whole lot more. He said how he hated religion. He said how he hated the Bible, and yet he loved the book of Isaiah. He quoted the book of Isaiah a lot. And I always felt really, really sad for him. They, they had an album called The Holy Bible, and it was not the mockery that many Christians thought it, that it was intended to be. It really wasn't intended to be that. But it was a, a, an album that was full of songs of despair. It rather brilliantly pointed out the hypocrisy in society, pointed out the sinfulness in human culture, and pointed out their own stupidity. And it was kind of like the world without Christ. He saw it. He saw it was hypocritical. He saw so many things that were wrong. I've always felt about Richie Jones that if only somebody could have shown him Jesus. Now, some of his friends said that he became a Christian, but not a born-again Christian is how they described it. But what they meant by that was not a right-wing American fundamentalist. But they said he, he, he became obsessed with Jesus Christ. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know if he's still alive. I, I, I don't know what he believed. But if you ever listen to that particular album, it's one that, in my view, certainly gives a pretty accurate presentation of the alienation and hatred and ignorance that is in the world. He says, You're without God. Maybe people knew about him without, God, without hope and without God in the world. I think that's a motto for our culture. That's a motto when you go on the bus tomorrow or you go to work. There are so many people around you who don't really have any substantial hope because they are without God. They may know something about him. Creation, Scripture, conscience all tell us things about God but we didn't know Him. We lived without Him. We lived as though He did not exist. We were orphans. We did not have God as our Father. The Ephesians lived in a pagan world, a, po- uh, a, a pre-Christian world. They became Christians. We now live and in- increasingly are moving towards being a pagan world in this country again, post-Christian. And it's not a happy condition. It is a sad world, Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. The message in the world is you don't belong. And if you do belong, you belong to nothing. It's worthless. The message, on the other hand, for those who become believers is you do belong. 
you are included. So Paul is writing to Ephesians and said, you used to be this, but God has worked in you, and now you've been brought in. You belong. I think that's one of the most wonderful things about Christianity, that uh, people of different races, different backgrounds, different ages, different genders, different opinions, different social groups are united, are one in Christ. And by the way, that's why apartheid was never Christian. That's why single-race churches is never Christian. That's why churches which focus on one particular class are not Christian. It is an absolute fundamental of the Christian gospel that different people from different backgrounds are brought together. We do not worship only with people who are just like us. He says, verses 13 to 18, that we have been given peace in Christ. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. It's an extraordinary picture. You were far away, you were brought near, but you were brought near through blood, through something violent, through something horrible, through something horrific. And He gives the example of the divide between Jews and Gentiles. He has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. Now, to understand this, I have to give you just a wee bit of background about the temple. In the temple, and this is what Paul is referring to, in the temple was the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple where the throne of God was established. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, only the high priest could enter into that, and only then by blood, by blood sacrifice. Outside that immediate area was uh, an area called the holy place for Jews only. That was an area that was reserved for them. Now, Paul here is not referring to that. What he's referring to is a wall that existed that divided Jews and Gentiles. You see it, for example, a similar example of that in Israel today, uh, a wall that's to keep people out, the Berlin Wall, or in Northern Ireland, in Belfast, still, I was watching a program last week, where there's still a wall up to prevent neighbors from getting at one another. Well, that's what occurred in the temple, and it was a wall There was the court of the priests, the court of Israel, and the court of women, all on the same level, and then the Gentile area was underneath. Even women, and women were not particularly highly prized. Even women were considered to be above the Gentiles. And on that wall that separated the Gentiles from the Jews was a warning, and the warning was not, trespassers will be prosecuted, The warning is literally, it was written in Greek, it was written in Latin, it was written in Hebrew, it was written in Aramaic. The warning was, uh, trespassers will be executed. It's a pretty strong deterrent. Another sign said, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. 
It was a small wall, but it said, you cross this barrier, you die. Why? Because you're not a Jew, because you're a Gentile. Now, if you've got your Bible, you turn with me to Acts chapter 21. You'll see an example of this. Acts 21 and verse 27. Paul visits the temple. Acts 21 verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously in Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him in to the temple area. The whole city was aroused and people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Why was that happening? It was happening because someone from Ephesus, we're reading about it here, Ephesians, Trophimus, had been taken by Paul into the temple, and people were prepared to kill for that. Sometimes, I was going to say religion, but I don't think it's religion. It's racialism, it's human stupidity. Sometimes that's where that leads. If a Jewish boy or girl married a Gentile boy or girl, you know what happened? The funeral of that Jewish boy was carried out. If he decided to marry a Gentile girl, or if a girl decided to marry a Jewish boy uh, or a non-Jew, then their funeral, their parents would hold a funeral for them because that was considered a dreadful thing to do. And Christ, Paul says, writes to the Ephesians, Paul who's a Jew, he writes to the Ephesians and he says, this wall of hostility between us has been destroyed. It's been destroyed. How? By Jesus Christ, first of all, verse 15, abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Now, Christ abolished the law not by destroying it, but by fulfilling it. We were at war with God. Christ kept the law for us, and now we're given peace. Since, in Romans 5 verse 1, Paul says this, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. And what Paul is saying is something that is crucially important, and in our world people need to know this, and our politicians need to recognize this, or they deceive us. In order for there to be peace between man and man, or woman and woman, there needs to be peace between human beings and God. And ultimately, no matter the amount of peacemaking that we try, it will not happen unless we are reconciled, first of all, to God. Why? Because within us, there is hatred. Some of us are comfortable and middle class and well-off, and we say, oh, I don't hate anybody. No, because you've not had your home destroyed, because you've not been attacked, because you've not been abused. But you will soon find that if that happens, you do have hatred. We need to be reconciled to God. I think uh, you think of the situation in Bosnia, it's been an anniversary of the attacks on uh, Sarajevo, and uh, 
when you hear what happened, when you read what happened, people who'd lived together, Croats and Muslims and Serbs who'd lived together, suddenly they were killing each other. Snipers were deliberately aiming for primary school children. Why? Why? Why such hatred? Because of what the Croats and the Muslims did to the Serbs in the Second World War. It was remembered. The hatred was there. We're not going to have peace at that macro level. We're not going to have peace at the micro level without, first of all, getting peace between us and God. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians. Jesus came. He came to die. He came to destroy the division and to preach peace, to proclaim peace, to unite us. He came and preached peace to you far away and peace to those who were near. Now, one of the the applications of that is that there has to be reconciliation. Once we become reconciled to God, there has to be reconciliation between us and other people. So, if you go across and Across into Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, it says this, in the new creation, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Galatians 3.28 says pretty well the same thing. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what's important in this is, and this is where people get a big misunderstanding. Some people say, well, what that means is Jews and Muslims and Christians, we're all the same, we all worship the one God, and so on. We just marry these different faiths together. No, that's that's actually the very opposite of the point that Paul is making. He's saying we can't be together without Jesus Christ. If you take Judaism and leave out Christ, or Islam, leave out Christ, or religious Christianity and leave out Christ, you are not going to have peace. Christ is our peace. Now, let me say that uh, I believe that God still has a special role for the Jewish people. I think on the basis of Romans 11, for example, that that is what that clearly teaches. But I cannot go along with some Christian teachers who seem to indicate that if you're Jewish, then you're Christian. I spoke at a meeting, uh, once at a church meeting or Christian conference, where the man who spoke before me stood up and said, if you're Muslim, you're Christian. If you're Christian, you're Muslim. No. No, you're not. Oh, you don't love your… You don't. When I said this, um, I was accused, you don't love your Muslim neighbors, to which my point was, well, I have Muslim neighbors, and I do love them, and what I want more than anything for them is I want them not to submit to Christianity, nor me to submit to Islam. I want both of us to know Jesus Christ. Christ is our peace. He is the one who preaches peace. I find it incredibly ironic those who talk a lot about peace are prepared to water down the gospel in the name of peace and reconciliation, taking away the very thing that could bring that real peace and reconciliation. There's an extraordinary claim being made here, and the claim is this, that God is destroying racism, that God is destroying sexism, that God is destroying 
all the, the kind of social divisions and class distinctions that we, we make, and he's making us one in Christ, which is why when I walk into an old church and I see the pews that are reserved for the squire and the landlords, I go, no, that's not the gospel. That is just not the gospel. That's a negation of the gospel. Or you go into some churches still in the southern U.S., thankfully not as many as once were, but they're very clearly black churches, black only. And you've got the equivalent white churches, white only, apart from a few uh, African students who may be visiting. It's just wrong. What's being claimed is that we are being brought together. Now, here's, here's the tricky bit for us. That means that if you and I claim to be Christians, we cannot hate people. We must not hate people. If someone is of a different race, if someone comes, what, what do you do if someone comes up to you and says, I'm homosexual? You go, oh, no, that's wrong. Now, the Bible tells us that sex is to be within the context of marriage. It's to be between one man and one woman. That's abundantly clear, and I will make that totally clear. But what is just as clear is that being homophobic in the sense of being afraid of homosexuals or hating homosexuals, is entirely wrong. We have no right to hate people. We ourselves were enemies of God, and we have been brought near. And God can bring anyone to Him. And we must pray that that is what happens. And when we're, we're taking communion, those of you who are Christians, just pray beforehand. Say, Lord, if I have anything against anyone hidden in my heart, Please help me to give it up, to forgive, especially, especially if that person is a Christian. Verses 19 to 22 says, we are built in Christ. We are a new kingdom. We're no longer stateless. I'm not making a political point here, but nationalism is extremely dangerous. Uh, that doesn't mean that I'm a conservative uh, as in the political sense, saying, watch out for these bad Scottish nationalists, because political conservatives tend to be British nationalists. Or um, you get other people who will, you know, advocate one particular group or whatever. There's nothing wrong with being Scottish and being proud of being Scottish. Nothing wrong with being Irish and being proud of being Irish. Nothing wrong with being British and being proud of being British. But for the Christian, it is a very slight distinction. That's why we got persecuted my absolute and ultimate loyalty is not to the Scottish state or to the British state or to the European Union or whatever group that you wish. My loyalty is to Jesus Christ and to His church. That's incidentally what was wrong with state churches where um, that's what went wrong in, in, in Bosnia, for example, where you had the Serbs saying, we are Serb, therefore we are Christian. You get people, I've, I've had people say to me, um, I'm Irish, therefore I'm Catholic. Or I'm Scottish, I'm Presbyterian, or I'm English, I'm Anglican. Uh, that happens uh, less and less. Uh, I loved, when I asked one man, do you believe in God? And he went, oh no, I'm Church of England. He was absolutely horrified. Uh, but what, what people are doing is they're putting an identity onto a church, a national identity onto a church, and that's wrong because the church is meant to consist of people from different races and different groups. We are one building. We are fellow citizens. We are brothers and sisters. They were strangers. You see, in, in 
Paul's world in Ephesus, there were people who would have no vote. They would have no right of residence. They were the strangers. And Paul said, you were strangers. You've been brought in. The foundation of the church is the foundation of the apostles and prophets of both the Old and New Testament. Christ is the cornerstone. The cornerstone of a building was not cosmetic. It was the brick by which the builders lined up all the other stones. In the temple, the cornerstone was 39 feet long. It was absolutely massive. And what Paul is saying is, as a church, it only works if we are united in Jesus Christ. We're not united because we look the same. You're not, we're not united because we eat or dress the same. We're not united because we come from the same background. We are united coming from a variety of different backgrounds because of what Jesus has done. You are a temple, a dwelling in which God lives by His Holy Spirit. You, in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. God no longer lives in, in that sense in the Old Testament temple on the mount in Jerusalem. He lives in His people today. And that should really affect how we regard one another and the huge practical significance of Christian unity. It is, as John Stott says, God's new society. In Ephesus, there was the great temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world. At this time, when this letter was written, Jerusalem's temple still stood. Both were designed for God, and both were empty. Behold, the dwelling of God is now with men. I think that uh, we really need to think very carefully about what that involves and how that works itself out. We live in a culture and we live in a country where people talk about the establishment of the church and various other things. They talk about religion. They talk about the loss of Christendom or Christianity in the state. And I want to say to us, forget it. Forget it. We're not going to get that back. But what we have to do is be God's new society. People long for community, but they don't know where to get it. Um, we have a couple of members in the congregation here uh, uh, who are now down in Durham, Steve Cavanaugh. And Steve, before he became a Christian, some of you will remember the time he gave his testimony here. And, um, Steve and I would meet up quite a bit when his, his wife Margaret became a Christian. And um, uh, Steve was funny because he basically decided he was going to be a pagan. And he and I would sit and discuss things. And I was teasing him one day and said, Steve, okay, you want to be a pagan? That's your choice. Uh, I know you're a new man, so you can't stop your wife coming to church. But what about your kids? He says, oh, I want my kids to come to church. I said, why? He said, because it's the only place I can think of, I know of in Dundee, where they'll meet people of different races, different ages, and be accepted, even though they're children. And he once told me, and he and I talked about this quite a lot, he said, David, I hate what you teach, but I love what I see in the community of the church. But that comes from not so much what we teach, but who we teach. It's Jesus Christ. Now, how many people have been put off Christianity by what they see in the church? 
They look at me. They look at you. They look at our hatreds and our gossip and our slander and and our bitterness and our cynicism and our self-righteousness and our hypocrisy and, and the way we treat other people. And they don't say, wow, God must be among you. They say there must be no God. You claim to follow this God. Look at what happens. We really do need to think about how all of this applies. Some, what, what does that mean? Some very, very small practical details, I think. You can think of some of the others and some of the other big things. It does mean you don't come to church. It does mean that you are the church. But therefore, it means you have a responsibility to love and care for your brothers and sisters. And that does mean you don't come to um, a worship service like this or as we have in the morning or whatever and just hang around with your own pals and your own group and the people who are like you. You know, all the young mums go together because they've all got children in common and then all the students go together because they're all incredibly shy and embarrassed and um, maybe not. All the, the older people want to be together or uh, maybe people of one race or one group want to be together. No, you make a deliberate effort to go and speak to people and to share with people who would not normally belong in your group because this isn't your group. I've heard people say to me at times, David, this is no longer our church. To which my immediate response is, duh, it never was your church. It's not my church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And whoever God sends, we accept and we welcome. And when someone says, but I just want people like this and I just want people like that, it's very serious what you are doing in your racism and your snobbery and your elitism and your your self-selection. You are negating the work of Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ came to do. On the other hand, it is surely, surely one of the most wonderful things that we can be accepted. I talked about feeling alienated. I know that some of you in this church will at times feel alienated. Sometimes I've felt like that. Do I really belong? What am I doing here? The answer is, yes, I do, because I belong to Jesus Christ. Yeah, but I don't like this, and I don't like that. So? It's not because you like something, it's because you love Jesus Christ, and therefore you are accepted. For some of you, that is really, really hard. You are so used to being on the outside. You are so used to being the one who is excluded. You you so want to belong to the in-group, but there isn't an in-group in the church. There's just Jesus and His people, and they're not divided into first, second, third classes as We were talking this morning a little bit about the Titanic, how there were these different classes of passengers on that particular ship. There are not different categories and groups within the church that you work your way up. I think you and I need to reflect on that, and we need to be a community of God's love in the various communities in which we live, where children and poor and rich and older people and the sick and others are all welcome. Can I say, if you're visiting here 
or you come here regularly and you're not a Christian. You, 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 can, you can belong. I'm not saying you do belong because you need to belong to Jesus first of all, but you can. Um, Amy uh, Campbell came to uh, meet with the elders about becoming a member in the church, and it's always quite an imposing prospect when you go in and there's a group of men sitting there looking incredibly solemn and uh, about to ask you questions. What are they going to ask? You know what they're going to ask? They're going to ask, do you believe in Jesus? They're going to ask to say something about your Christian experience of Jesus Christ and your love for Him and for His people, and that's it. They don't care what money you have. They don't care what background you come from. They don't care any of that in terms of being able to belong and to share together. And when we sit at the Lord's table in a moment, that is the only thing that counts, that it's in Christ alone our hope is found. And if you are not a believer, I, I, I urge you to look for that and to find that. And if you are a believer and sometimes you're feeling disconnected, disjointed, alienated, you're not. You belong to the biggest family in the world. I mean, I'm sure uh, Hugh, when he travels in Africa and elsewhere, isn't it the case that one of the great experiences you get is you go to a, a church where there's a complete group of strangers and they believe and trust in Jesus and you know that you've got that bond. It's there. It's, in, it's an incredible thing to experience. And it's, it really is real because Christ is real. So if you are a Christian, you're feeling isolated, uh, isolated alienated, and so on, let it go. Just realize that you're not. You are accepted. And if you have alienated other people, and if you hate other people, and if you have grudges and grievances and anger and cynicism against other Christians, let it go too, because Jesus died so that we would be united together. Let God deal with it. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You have made us one in Christ. I do pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know You. Lord, in so many ways they are missing out, but not least in not belonging to Your family. The church is not the ugly, cynical, manipulative, money-grabbing, moralistic organization that is so often portrayed as, but it is Your bride and it is Your people, and we are all invited to the party. We are all invited to belong. We are all invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. We ask that You would help us with that. And Lord, if any of us here are Christians, and yet we, we sometimes do feel kind of cut off, help us to have a deeper fellowship with You and with one another. Help us to get to know one another and to serve one another sacrificially. Help us not to be continually standing up for our own rights and what we want but just help us to recognize that we are part of a body. And we ask that you would bless your body in this place. And as we, we take communion together and we sit and share together, may each of us recognize the body and blood of the Lord. For we ask it in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. 
for information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Center for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.